0: I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. And I am so excited to have Dr. Nicole Peoples here with me today. Um, Dr. Peoples is one of my dearest friends, and also a mom, and also a doctor, and she is a mom of a child with sickle cell. And so um, we, we've had plenty of conversations about race over, over our friendship, and um, the deeper I've dived into racism and the way it pervades all the systems. I've been thinking a lot about healthcare and realizing that sickle cell is just one of these diseases that is so racially charged um, and, 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 and such a big issue that I think a lot of people can learn from. So, Nicole, thanks for being on the, on the podcast, on the show, and, and welcome. Oh, thanks. Happy to be here. Um, so, let's talk. It, um, I guess let's start with you know, you, you're, what how, how old was your daughter when she was diagnosed?
1: Um, at birth. At birth. They do, yeah. I mean, around birth, within months of her birth, they do regular screenings. Mm-hmm. I knew that I had the sickle cell trait um, and my husband had thalassemia trait. And when you put those together, you get a form of sickle cell. Um, so sickle beta thalassemia plus is what my daughter has. Um, so it's so a little different, but we knew ahead of time that it was a possibility that she could have sickle cell. Okay. Okay. And so what has it been like for you
0: as a mom? I mean, there's no, you can't separate the doctor and the mom in there. Um, it's all, it's all together, but I'd like to, to get a sense of, um, what it's been like for you to be the mom of a sickle cell, um, a, a child with sickle cell and, and like what your experience has been like with the healthcare system, how, how it's changed the way you've seen the way that people with sickle cell are treated.
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, as a mom, getting any diagnosis of a child, I mean, is scary, right? And coming into it, sort of knowing what sickle cell was, um, I it helped and hurt how I felt about it. You know, it's like I I have probably more knowledge than most people about the disease when, um, when my daughter was diagnosed, but at the same time, um, I just know what that looks like over the trajectory of a lifetime and what sort of Interactions my daughter would potentially have with the healthcare system, and that really scared me. I mean, that really more than anything else. And sickle cell is a unique d- disease because um, it is sort of pinned by its pain, right? It's that is the disease. The disease um, leads to chronic, recurrent pain. And obviously, as a mom, you don't want your child to be in pain for any reason right. and to know that she has a disorder that could lead to just random pain. I mean, that was terrifying as well. So yeah, I think I, from a a mom's side, it was more of just the fear of what potentially suffering she would go through. And from a physician perspective, it was more of, oh my gosh, no, I don't want her to have to interface with the healthcare system.
0: It's so tough. It's for anyone listening who isn't medical. um, Can you talk a little bit about what sickle cell is? um, And and, and obviously, the, the risk factors for it and, and, and the, the patient population who gets it?
1: So, sickle cell factor, is. Yes. Well, sickle cell word? is a disease of the, of the blood cells. And basically, your blood cells have a particular shape, and that shape allows them to go through the blood vessels. And then, if the shape changes, it can clog the blood vessels. And if you clog the blood vessels, you reduce blood flow to a specific area, and that can lead to pain. Um, so, you know, the people who typically get it tend to, well, well, it's a genetic disease. So you have a genetic predisposition to get the disease. Um, and so if both of your parents have a trait, then, and you get both of those traits and you end up with the disease. Now, there are some people who just have the trait like myself, where I can't say for myself, I've had any symptoms of sickle cell, but there have been people who have stated that even with the trait that they've had symptoms. um, but, um typically, you know, that's how you get it. You don't, there's no other sort of risk factor for it. Um, and it typically um, affects the people of African-American descent and Mediterranean descent. Um, so you'll see it, particularly in America, you'll see most of the people who have sickle cell um, be African-American, um, but it's also highly prevalent as you can imagine in Africa, but also in the Mediterranean.
0: So, so right away, it's already something that like, in our country, only black people have. So it's already kind of putting itself in this category of like, race is already there even yeah, know, explicitly.
1: It, yeah, I mean, the, the, I wanna clarify, it's, it's not only black people, but majority of people are black. Um, and it, when you learn about it in medical school, as you could probably remember, um, it is a disease that we categorized as, you know, as black people, right? So black people have this disease. There are other diseases that other groups, you know, are more likely to have. Mm-hmm. Um, cell has always sort of been attributed to being African, uh, people of African descent. Um, do, do people in the like of Caribbean descent have
0: it or is it like, is there common?
1: Yeah, I, you know, so, and I haven't really looked into this, I guess the uh, prevailing theory is it's sort of survival of the fittest. Um, so I think at some point there's there's a theory that um, because it protects against malaria, so that is the one thing that sickle cell does do. It protects people from developing malaria. And malaria is a disease that is um, uh, popular um, uh, uh, endemic. In, endemic, sorry, to you know the African continent. And so that that's why sickle cell was able to thrive in that area. So if you look at sort of evolution and genetics, that's the theory as to why it's prevalent within our genetic code um, more than other people's genetic codes. So, cause it, it um, prevailed in our society um, because it had a pr- protective um, component, but I don't, I, I honestly, I haven't, I haven't looked into, you know, whether or not that's in fact, you know, evolutionarily yeah. true. Is what but it it. like, who knows? Yeah. And that's what we were taught. So, I mean, um, so that's what I, I, I know about that. But yes, yeah, so if you were to look at Carib people, um, Caribbean Americans or Caribbeans in general, then they would also have that same genetic code. Okay.
0: So, so you, you're, you've, from what I've been, you've told me, like you, your daughter has not had a whole lot of sickle cell crises and, and interactions with the healthcare system, but so In the ones that she has had, what have you noticed about the way she's treated and, and, and how was that kind of, what has that taught you about the, 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 the treatment of, of these patients and also of the, the racial and racist implications of it?
1: Um, I, I think, you know, the first thing is, is I have to sort of give the little backstory about sort of how I've seen sickle cell be treated um, as a physician. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, how that has sort of colored my lens of how my daughter is treated or potentially can be treated. Um, And so as a clinician, we know that pain, I guess everybody doesn't know this, but pain is often um, undertreated in people of African descent. Um, Historically, there was a theory or a thought that um, people, black people, had a higher pain tolerance. So pain didn't affect them the same way it affected white people. This was, goes back to, you know, hundreds of years ago in medicine where, um, you know, black people were, uh, that research was done on them. And, you know, they were, um, surgery was done on them without anesthesia because of these theories that black people had a higher tolerance to pain. It wouldn't hurt them the way it hurts everyone else. And that sort of theory um, has kind of, than pervasive within the medical system. Um, And so you take that and then you add on top of that sort of the perception um, of black people and drugs. So another perception within our country is that black people use drugs more. And so when they come in, in contact with the healthcare system, they're seen as people who want to take advantage of the system to obtain drugs. So you take both of those things and you work in a hospital that is heavily populated with black people, you're going to come across people who nurses other doctors who treat patients a certain way based off of those preconceived notions and so I saw that a lot in my training. I've seen how black people are not considered to be you know oh, that person is lying about their pain. they're not really in that much pain. You see that over and over again mm-hmm. um, and you see that they're undertreated, right? So you see that either prescribes left pain medicine, you have nurses who will have the order to give pain medication and still not give it. Um, So that sort of is the backdrop, but then you add on to that a disease where the treatment is pain medicine, right? And even more importantly, understanding how to manage sickle cell disease is in itself a sort of a subspecialty right? So if you're reading the literature, the literature says that you have to give a certain amount of pain medicine to sort of prevent the pain from getting worse. So you have to give high amounts of, of pain medicines early on. Um, and most doctors don't know that. And so what they do is they, they treat sickle cell patients the way that they would treat anybody who's in pain, and that's inappropriate. And so um, you'll see even there's studies on this that show that people with sickle cell are undertreated. Their pain is consistently undertreated. So I knew all of that going into this with my daughter. Um, But I also knew that as a resident and early on in my career that I also had those same preconceived notions. Like I didn't quite understand how to treat sickle cell. I didn't know how aggressive you needed to be, how much pain medicine to give. And so I can say for myself, I probably undertreated people. And so one of the things that was really sort of shocking to me is that you'll see that not only are these patients undertreated, but then they're, they're stigmatized, right? So when they do come to the hospital for pain management, that's the reason they come, because they're in pain. When they come to the hospital for pain management, you'll hear nurses say, you know, talk about them in certain ways, um, And I just remember, you know, being a hospitalist working in the ER, I would admit patients from the ER, where nurses would say, oh, she's not in pain, or I'll get calls in the middle of the night saying, she's, you know, asking for pain medicine, but she's on on her telephone or she's watching a movie um, to insinuate that she's really not in pain. Mm -hmm. So then when my daughter um, had her first crisis, the thing that I would do with the thing that I learned was that I had to distract her with things like TV or I'd have to distract her by talking to her, giving her something to get her mind off of the pain. And that was my first realization that, you know, pain medicines aren't the only thing that help you get out of pain. There are a lot of distractions and things that you can do to kind of you know, modulate your pain. But when I thought about that, I thought about all the patients who were doing that. I, Whenever you go into a sickle cell patient's room, they're usually doing something. They're usually watching TV, they're on the phone, they're doing something to keep themselves active so that they're not thinking about the pain that they're chronically in. Um, and it wasn't until I experienced that as a mom of a patient with sickle cell that I realized that I was stigmatizing and that all God. the nurses were stigmatizing and all these other doctors were stigmatizing their patients for doing what they needed to do to get their pain under control. And then sort of the last component of that perspective is, is that the patients also know that they're being stigmatized and they also know that people will undertreat them. And so they become upset that they're in pain and this particular doctor on this particular day doesn't know how to treat their pain. and. Other doctors do know how to treat their pain. So they're trying to dictate to the doctor, listen, this is how my pain is treated. If you give me this medication, this medication works for me. Um, and so when you do, so when you, as a physician, you know how this turns, you know, when a patient starts to tell you what they need and how they need it, and particularly when it comes to pain medicine, you automatically, you know, put them in the category of drug seeker, right? right. Yeah, all that. Automatically. And so then that changes your behavior again. Um, so, you know, having a daughter with sickle cell, having to go to the hospital and having to have them give her pain medication was actually really hard for me. Um, I didn't want my daughter to get pain medication because I didn't want my, my daughter to be that, that patient in five years and 10 years and 20 years who was so addicted to the pain medication that whenever she went into the hospital, nobody believed her, that she, you know, I wanted to shelter her from addiction that is inevitable that you know when you are on chronic pain medications your whole entire life um and so you know this has been a really difficult thing to navigate trying to be a mother and a doctor of a patient who has chronic pain um and i think you know me clinically i don't have in the very beginning because i was very reluctant to give pain medications the, and i was dealing with a lot of pediatricians, doctors who were used to dealing with patients with sickle cell, um, pediatricians tend to know more about sickle cell than adult doctors do. They kept, you know, they would keep offering me pain medication. I remember the very first time we went, they kept offering me pain medication. And I kept saying, can we give Tylenol? Can we give Motrin? And they were like, no, we can give Dilaudid. We can give fentanyl, these stronger medications. And I was really reluctant. They were the ones sort of pushing it on me until I realized, no, my daughter is really in pain if I don't treat her. Then she's just going to get worse. If I don't give consent for her to get treated that way with these strong, addictive medications, um, my daughter is going to suffer. So it's been complicated, you know, um, trying to navigate my own mind on this. um, Coming as a physician who didn't quite understand to being a mother who was forced to understand. Um, And you know, I think I've been a little bit luckier than most because. Um, because I, I, I understood how the healthcare system worked. And um, I also knew that the, typically I would try not to tell the, the nurses and the doctors that I was a physician because I didn't want us to be treated any different. But it's in my chart they knew. So they would always come in and talk to me like a, a doctor as opposed to a mother. And that was also very hard. But because um, when you're a mother, you just want to be a mother. You don't want to be your profession. You know. Wow. So, yeah, I mean... There's so,
0: it's like looking back, like I have this 2020 lens now. It's not even 2020. It's like 20 something better than it was, but I'm still refining it of all of the, all of the microaggressions that I've committed in my career, my medical career. I left five years ago, well before I had learned much about, I learned nothing about systemic racism, to be honest. And like my own contribution to it. Cause I was like, I'm liberal. It's fine. I don't count, you know, like I don't contribute to it. And so like looking back and being like, cause like these patients will come in and they'll be in the hospital for like sometimes weeks at a time getting their pain controlled. And there's this balance between like they're in pain and then they're like talking to you, but slurring their speech and like walking to the bathroom, but about to fall over from their pain medicine. And you're like, are they going to overdose? Like, this is clearly a sign to me that, that they're drug seek, you know, like, like we use these clues that might work, for other patients, but don't work with sickle cell population uh, because their bodies deal with pain, like in pain medications differently, because it's been a chronic thing. So we can't use the same context as we might for someone who comes in when pain for something else for the first time when they're 35 years old. Um, And there were arguments and like feeling like I was, you know, like because you're taught in med school, like don't give pain meds unless people need it, because they're going to get addicted. Yes. Don't give antibiotics and get less, because they're going to get resistant. And so it's like this battle from the beginning. So what, what do we do as healthcare professionals? Like, how can we be better? How can we be more compassionate and, and recognize the way that we're harming people?
1: I think so. the first thing I want to say is, is that when you said that the patients might be there for weeks at a time, sometimes they're, at, they're in there for weeks at a time because the doctors that are managing them aren't managing. Them. If totally. they had done what they were supposed to do in the very beginning, yeah. then they would have gotten the pain under control and then been able to taper the patient off. But yeah. so oftentimes the length of stay is a result of just inadequate knowledge on the behalf of the people prescribing medications, which is sad. Um, but I think one of the things that, you, that popped in my mind when you were talking was that this is ingrained in the way we're taught, right? It's as clinicians, Um, and so it's not just you as a white woman treating black patients, it's black, you know, doctors treating black patients, you know, we have to sort of be aware of, you know, our own biases going in. Um, and we also have to be aware, have a better awareness of the disease that we're treating. Again, sickle cell is one of those diseases that because possibly, um, because it's one that affects African-Americans more than other groups. It may not be something that a particular doctor has actually read up on since medical school. They haven't read the current literature on it. They haven't found it to be relevant to their current practice. And so, or it's just not as important, right? Like, oh, I know how to manage pain. We, we make assumptions about our own capabilities as practitioners. So I think the first thing we have to do is we have to, number one, be aware of our biases. Number two, be aware of the disease that we're treating. and then check our biases at the door and say, okay, would I treat this person differently if they, you know, if, if, I, if they were a different color or if I understood the situation better? Um, I think there's also cultural differences that also play a role. And so if you don't understand the culture of what it means to be black in America, interfacing with the healthcare system on a regular basis and being in pain, um, then I think that's where social sort of competency comes in, to sort of understand that there might, uh, the patient may already come in with preconceived notions about how they're going to be treated um, because of how they've been treated before. So even if you're a well-intending doctor, doesn't mean that every other doctor who treated that person before was well-intending and did their job correctly. So that patient's going to come in the same way you would come in, a little guarded about sharing information, about expressing their pain, because they don't want to, you know, they they've been interfacing with the healthcare system since they were children, so they know the drill about sickle cell better than you do. Mm-hmm. Just say that off, unless you've got sickle cell or you specialize in sickle cell, they've experienced it. It's oftentimes physicians have a hard time recognizing that maybe the expert in the room is actually the patient. So I think that that is you know pivotal, particularly when treating sickle cell patients. Um, and then I also think that we have to do a, a better job of checking our um, colleagues. There are numerous occasions where I've had to go and tell uh, when I er- overheard people talking about, oh, the pain seeker in room five. Um, or, you know, where I would have to say, listen, this person has sickle cell. <laughs> She's in chronic pain. She's been on pain medications since she was a child. Um, and, She, of course, she has issues with addiction. Of course, she's dependent. Of course, she's built tolerance. You have to understand that when you're treating these patients and not label them, right? Um, And it's not just sickle cell. Another one I see this often in people who are in chronic pain where they get dismissed often um, is type 1 diabetes. Mm. And the reason is because it's another disease where these patients have been on medications or maybe been in the hospital numerous times and interface with the healthcare system numerous times. And by the time they get to you as an adult, they have also have some biases, right? They also are going to assume as a practitioner, you don't care, that you're not invested, that you're not gonna treat them appropriately, that you're going to judge them. Um, so I think it's really important that we understand that population better, understand the disease better, and understand ourselves better um, when interacting with those patients.
0: Oh gosh, it's so, God, you know, the number of times we've been like, yeah, they're whatever. They say they're in pain, but they're on their, they're on their iPad, they're on their phone, Do, you know, like, like that, that, that
1: it's so ugly. It's so <laughs> you we've worked in different places. I said, it's so common that we've worked in yeah. different places, but the experience is exactly the same. Right. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, and yeah. And I mean, you, you and I have had conversations and I'm like, oh they're distracting themselves like oh oh, you know like of course but why don't we think that there there ends up being this like oppositional battle a lot of times in medicine and i think i'm just thinking about the, the trauma like the trauma response that 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 these patients with sickle cell who we will call sicklers which is horrible on its own so like do you have a preferred way
1: um, I mean, I think with all people, we should just refer to them as you know people. Their, with. their name <laughs> would yeah. be work. What, I mean, but I mean, it, it's it's. I mean, I, I haven't really thought about you know. Do I have nickname? You know, I, I tend to refer to people as patients. Mm-hmm. Um, the patient in room, um, but that's more of a HIPAA sort of thing. You don't want to go around saying people's names in public spaces. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, that that's just something I think we have to be cautious of as well. is like giving labels to people that takes away their humanity.
0: Yeah. As you could say, sickler to any doctor and they're going to have a response Yeah, and they are going to have all these things lined up of what they believe about that patient before they even walk in the room. I bet we could survey and nine out of 10 doctors would have that, if not 99 out of a hundred doctors would have that, but
1: um, I think because it, it is, it's hard on the physician side. It's hard on the practitioner, on the nurse's side, on the, the practitioner side as well, because, because we don't understand, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's why, you know, when you say something like that and you say, oh, it's, you know, 99 out of 100 will all have a response or a visceral response because we're so unused to and so used to not addressing the fact that we don't know anything about what we're doing when it comes to sickle cell disease and we're right. not treating it, and we refuse to admit it, that we all have this visceral response. Now, I have a much more compassionate response, right? Yeah. But of course, it took me having a child with sickle cell to sort of recognize, huh, maybe I'm, my biases are, are showing up here. And those biases aren't just my biases. They're the biases that were passed down. Like, it is, it is taught to be biased against yeah. sickle cell patients. Right, yeah. It's you're taught the same way you're taught to be biased against people with substance abuse issues, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah,
0: I think about the, the trauma that is accrued over a lifetime for um for pa- for patients with sickle cell and how that informs their response. Like yeah. you're saying, they're you know, maybe distrust or they're going to come in a little upset that they're going to be under t- under treated. And then, and then also almost the trauma response of the doctors from being, our training is brutal. And so what happens is instead of like wanting to have patients so we can take care of them and make them feel better, we start to like resent having one more patient to take care of. And the, the notion of having someone that may be there for a long time or the, you know, like we have our own trauma response and it's not, it's not like we have poor doctors, but it's like something to think about after doing the, the punishing hours and, and schedule of, of residency. A lot of medical school is that way. Like we're coming in with our trauma, and then these patients are coming in with their trauma. But they're like not—they're not like.
1: Yeah, so it, they don't they match. Come, yeah, and they butt head. But I think I think that goes back to our training, right? Yeah, because we are supposed to be compassionate people. We're su- but, and we're expected to be compassionate people. But then I would say to some degree, you're given a pass when you come in contact with the difficult patient. Mm-hmm. And who falls into that difficult patient? It's usually people who have, it actually comes in all the things that you would come in contact when you come in contact with the sickle cell patient. So it's that patient is already may have some hostility because of their lifelong trauma of having to interface with the healthcare system. They're in pain, so they're giving the drug that we're told we shouldn't be giving, that we shouldn't give a lot of, that if we give too much of it, that we could be penalized for it. So you add that on top of it, and then the patient's gonna be there for a very long time. Um, And so, yeah, you have to deal with that. And then on top of that, you add in the fact that the preconceived judgment is sometimes baked into the way you were trained to treat it. So you add all those things in there um, and that becomes a difficult patient. And with anything, you know, anybody's going to have a visceral response to that unless you're taught how not to, right? So we're not taught not to have a visceral response, how to deal with patients who might be dealing with chronic pain. Mm -hmm. We're taught the exact opposite, that these are going to be difficult patients and that, you know, it's going to, you know, you're going to have to be in constant battle with them. And then you go into the room and you are in constant battle. So that makes it even more difficult, right? Because you come in defensive and they come in defensive. Um, So yeah, we have to do better. We, our job is to remind the patient that we understand that they are in pain and that our goal is one and the same with them that that is to get their pain under control. We also understand that you know, when you're in pain, you may not be nice, and it's okay. Like, I'm here to take that burden. If anything, I understand if I come in the room, and you're not as pleasant as I want you to be, um, just, you know, take a moment and think about how pleasant you are when you're in pain, right? Right. Um, And it's like, you're putting this, you know, you want them to have more resiliency than you have. And they're the ones in pain, you know, so, I think that's just an unfair expectation.
0: Um, Absolutely, that's so so helpful. Um, So yeah, so for doctors coming in, A, checking your biases, B, being aware of the disease. This is all stuff that you said, so I'm just kind of recounting it. Being aware of the disease, like read up on it, make sure you're actually doing the most up-to-date guidelines. Um, understand the cultural differences and the distrust isn't because black people are distrusting people. It's because white people have done so many bad things to black. We didn't get at this, but it's important to say that the healthcare system has done so many things. Society has, but specifically in the healthcare context as well, Tuskegee. Um, you know, so many different um, bad things to black patients that. The distrust is there pa- passed along. It's a cultural thing, but it's totally understandable. So, understanding that
1: and then but It's not just passed along, it's then re- reproduced, right? So, yeah. Though you have these big major things, like I think the father of OBGYN was given that title because he did these experiments on Black people, uh, yeah. Black women, without anesthesia. Um, they're those big things right that happened a long time ago but then the culture of medicine has not changed that much I mean one of the things that I think is actually really interesting is is that how we um, the very first thing you learn in medical school is how to sort of or when you're presenting a patient is to give their you know name their age and then their race and that always threw me for one because I'm like why is their race important like if you think about it Not really important. And the reason why we do that is because a long time ago in our culture, in the the medical culture, we needed to know their race to make to know that, you know, how to treat this patient, right? So if you worked in a hospital where they had black and white patients. It was important to know that this patient that you just are talking about is a white patient I'm supposed to treat this way. And this person is a black patient who may not get the same treatment, may not get the same level of care, may not have the same. So that whole idea of adding race in there shouldn't be there anyway, yet we still teach that to medical students today. Yeah. So that I think it's not just the things that happened in the past. Yeah. It's the, how we still structure healthcare.
0: Yeah, that's so powerful. And I was also like cuz we're we're taught that it's like well certain patient populations like for example a lot of times people who grew up who were born and grew up in Asia can have hepatitis B transmitted to them. I know you know this, but for people who are listening, transmitted to them from birth. And and it can cause so you would want to know theoretically that someone is from Asia, you know, Chinese or from somewhere in Asia because they'd be at risk for that if you're talking about they're coming in with like liver related complaints or something but that's not how it's used like that's what we're taught that that's what it's about but it's not at all how it's used and you're blowing my mind right now i didn't realize that the origins of that was sort of like well they're white or they're black so they're gonna go have this treatment or that but it totally makes sense it's just we don't get taught that
1: yeah, and yeah and I, there are there are situations like you said where it is important but that but it's it shouldn't be standard, right? It's not like something that you need to know about every patient that comes in. Um, if it's relevant, if it's relevant history, but it's not relevant in most of the cases. Um, yeah. And the other thing that
0: happens is we only say it when they're not white. What ends up getting passed through is like we assume they're white unless you say that they're not. Like, I don't know how many times I've heard, you know, a 55-year-old white female or Caucasian female versus Black female or Asian or some you know some other uh, ethnicity so it's just another example of the like pervasiveness of, of whiteness
1: and it's kind of triggering um, almost I mean to me it's kind of seem because tr- sure. the moment you say black I think it then you start you start to formulate an opinion right like if you have biases that are even you know that are conscious or unconscious the moment you give that detail you start to Play to whatever biases that whoever's listening to right mm-hmm. so you say black female and then you say is coming in with pain well automatically that's gonna if you have biases which most of us do <laughs> that's going to trigger something if you if you say asian if you say this is a 45 year old asian female or a particularly asian male we're taught you know in these cultured- cultural competence arenas that there are certain things we're supposed to attribute to like Asian Americans that they're stoic and they don't they don't show their pain they may be in pain but they don't show it and this is important to know however now what we've done is we've now added a bias that is gener- that may not be generalizable right and so you see somebody and you just make these assumptions and i think that's dangerous right particularly for people who aren't trained to be able to use these things if we're just a lot of times in cultural competency we're just sort of cutting the surface of things that we should possibly think about in a particular um, patient population. But if that person who you're teaching isn't really aware of the complexities of a cultural group, then they may be using those biases inappropriately. Um, For example, oftentimes when people talk about blackness, they talk about poverty. So the moment you say black, somebody might be associating poverty to it. So they assume that every person who's black is impoverished or may not have good access to healthcare or may not. You know, so it's, I think it's a tricky situation. I think our training has to be more comprehensive so that we're not giving people biases to think about the moment that you use their race.
0: Right, right. And also not to forget the like, countless systemically racist policies that have led to that perception of poverty and that, actual, that reality of poverty for a lot of people that's not because it's black. (laughs) That's because racism made it that way. So, so yeah. And we don't learn any of that. I don't, I don't remember learning any of that. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. So for my, um, conscious anti-racism course for healthcare, um, a doctor named Stacy Schmidt, who's at, um, uh, a, a local, uh, county hospital here, she, she did a video and, um, on social determinants of health, which are these sort of Social things that can lead to health issues, and they come up a lot in in patients who have been marginalized in by our, our systemically racist society in various ways. And she starts with a case study. It's so it was so brilliant. She was like, you know, forty eight year old guy, uh, miss, you know, come scheduled for your outpatient clinic. He's he's been a no show the last two times. He's here um, last visit. He was noted to be non compliant and uh, wanting pain medication for his chronic such and such. And he's coming in to see you today, Mm -hmm. you know? And and it says something about his, like, maybe about his education, maybe not. Mm -hmm. And she's like, reads the case. And then she's like, okay, ask yourself in your mind, is this patient black or white? Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh my God, she didn't say race. Like she didn't say black, but my brain automatically assigned him to, to that. And I know that I'm not the only one that happens to, because she wouldn't have made that example otherwise. But like, She's like, what are you making assumptions about his education level, and what are you this and and it goes into talking to people to understand more why they are, what has led them to come in in the state that they're in, Mm -hmm. and and understanding their adverse childhood events and all these other things. But it was just so powerful. It was like, oh
1: crap! I was like, I failed. (laughs) I failed
0: so hard, but it was so eye opening because it's like we we all have it and and. It, it just is a sign that we need to work on it. And, and, and it's in us, it's not out there. It is out there, but it's also in us and, and us meaning white people. And I, I can't speak for black people, but you were just saying before that black people, you know, medical professionals, you have the same, we hold, a lot of the same biases.
1: We, we hold biases um, and we, we perpetuate racist ideas. Um, we, you know, we're trained in the same schools that you're trained in for the most part. I mean, with the same sort of educational biases, right? Um, and if you're not raised in an environment where you're getting the counter information, right, where you're learning about all of these racial disparities and how that they play a role in the lives of Black people, if you're not in an, in an environment where that's part of the education as well, you're not immune from having those biases, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is why you see so many, uh, you know, people who who are Black who also go along with racist policies, right? So I think it's important that it's more likely that Black people may have a better understanding because they may have gotten that education from the home, but they definitely didn't get it from the school. Um, and we went to the same, you know, we had the same curriculum when we talked about history. Yeah. You know? so Yeah. And I think without that consciousness coming into, you know, primary school and then again into secondary school and then into, you know, colleges and by then, by the time you get to medical school, gosh, you know, you've lost so much opportunity to check your biases and those biases are much more ingrained. And then we, we assume that the doctors, because of their level of education, that somehow they're immune, you know, that just seems kind of ridiculous.
0: Well, because then you're adding in the God complex and the like paternalism and all of that stuff. So it like, it actually, I think,
1: exacerbates
0: it. Makes it worse. Exactly. Exactly. And for doctors listening, like, it's not your fault. <laughs> it's real, it's a thing. So yeah. So, um, and then, gosh, and then, so going, going, I mean, this has been so incredible, uh, Nicole. Um, going back to, to, the way to shift your approach to, to your patients is like coming in there with a common goal and being like, I know that, you know, like understanding their pain behavior may not look the same as other people's pain behavior. And like my goal, like reassuring them, my goal is this mm-hmm. to get your pain under control. And I love that. It's okay. If you're not pleasant, do you, do you suggest that people say that like, out like explicitly?
1: Um, I, I don't, I typically don't say it out explicitly, but I, when people are not pleasant, (laughs) um, I reassure them that it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I just tell people like like I understand that you're you're upset and I would be upset too if I was in pain. So let me let me try to handle how to get your pain under control and you know let's see if we can work together. And and I, I, I didn't add this but you can ask the patient for their help. I do that often. Like if they're upset you acknowledge that they're upset, and then you say, what can I, what would make the difference for you, right? What am I not, what am I missing? What is it that I, that you were looking for me to do that's not being done? Um, And I'll, and you know, the other thing I, I always do for my sickle cell patients is I ask them, I, I lead with, how has your pain been controlled in the past? What medicines worked for you? Because here's another thing that I don't think doctors know all that much about is that all of our bodies, we process pain medication differently. We have a different system uh, in each of our bodies based off of our genetics that allows us to respond differently to certain pain medicines. So when a patient says morphine doesn't work for me, I don't think that they are just blowing smoke up my ass. I actually know that it's very possible that they have the genetic variation that doesn't activate you know, the drug into its active form. So I think, again, that's education. I think most doctors were taught that, but they don't know how to apply it. And if you know that and you understand that, then you're more apt to ask your patients who have pain, not just your sickle cell patients, but people who have been on pain medications, what have worked for you before? What pain medicines have worked? Because um, they can, particularly a sickle cell patient, they can tell you how to treat their pain. What worked? And I've had patients say, I get allotted every hour. With breakthrough pain, I get, you know, Percocet or whatever it is. And if that's what's worked for them, why are we so reluctant to do that for them? And if you look it up in the evidence, it shows that giving Q1-hour pain medications in sickle cell patients is not uncommon. Um, So I I think that that is also something. Acknowledge their pain, but also ask them for their help
0: like, what are we holding on to so damn tightly? Like, like, you know, it's like, I must be the steward of everything, you know? Like, I have to clench and control it all. And like, it's like, there's a human being there. There's a, there's a body of a human with emotions and experiences in their life that have come to this moment. They are not here to torment you. It's not about you, you know? And like, it feels like it is because medicine is the training just kind of like, I think a lot of times can like beat the compassion out of us, but um, in different ways or, or uh, just change the way we approach interactions with our patients, which is so tragic, but um,
1: this- I think encourage just to just remind people to encourage them to read the literature because the literature on how to treat pain in sickle cell patients is different than the literature on how to treat acute pain um, in a patient who hasn't had chronic pain for their entire life um so i think it's important because it may sound out of the box like well you know why would i give that much opiates to a patient read the literature and you'll find out why
0: yeah yeah and also remembering that this isn't just about pain there's so many other complications that can happen that are life-threatening they can be life-threatening and so this is like real legit deal this is this is like the pain is legit enough but also like knowing that that we have to be on our guard to make to try to prevent these to try to prevent these consequences and um it's like for death what we're talking about a lot of times and um yeah any any other last thoughts on 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 sickle cell or racism oh. in healthcare in general this has been oh. incredible
1: Yeah, I mean, I I would just encourage, you know, in general, for doctors to be just to take a little bit of humble pie, um, particularly when it comes to dealing with people of other cultures, um, and recognize that you don't know everything, um, and that it's okay that you don't know everything. And then also understand that the patient that you're coming in contact with may not trust you. And that's okay, too right like our job is not to be the god to everyone our job is to at least at minimum be patient and understanding and if you don't have space or capacity to be patient and understanding ask for help you know ask another colleague to say listen i'm having a hard time understanding why this patient seems to be so hostile towards me having a hard time understanding because sometimes it's not just the medicine right it's you know i can tell you to read the journal article and you can still do that and that Patients still may not respond to you the way that you want them to respond to you, um, and so I think it's important that we take a moment, be a little bit more humble, um, and and not only ask a ask a friend, but ask a person of that cultural descent. Right, so you can get very far by asking other African American doctors about how they would respond, and see and, and, and sort of realize that maybe your response is not. The only response, maybe there's another way, maybe mm-hmm. other people have formulated a different approach to responding to the same issue and that your blind spot, you might have blind spots on the way that you're responding and you don't even know them. And the only way you'll know is by, by talking to other people. Yeah,
0: yeah. Like being open to being wrong, which is not something that we take too kindly to. as
1: wrong. You don't oh, have to be yeah. wrong. Right. You don't have to be wrong to be, realize that I can do this better. Right. Yeah.
0: You're
1: Maybe not, be,
0: be open to right? learning. Yeah. Be open to learning and growing. Maybe that's a better way to say that. I'm glad that you. Called, I'm glad that you.
1: Because I don't want people to feel like, you know, that, you know, oftentimes when we talk about race issues, um, white people are scared to ask questions. There's, you know, because they don't want to be perceived as being biased or racist by asking the question. Um, But at the same time, you know, we're talking about patient care here. And so I think the stakes are higher the same way the stakes are higher in any job where somebody's life is on the line. Right. So medicine, policing, politics, I think those are the areas where you really can have an immediate effect on somebody's life. And if you're not willing to get the information, then you may give care that is subpar Um, and the consequences are too great. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, well, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. Um, it was a fun, fun to connect with you, uh, even though we're talking business. Um, but, uh, thank you for being your your beautiful self and, um, and, and sharing your experiences as, as a mom and as a doctor and as a black woman, like all of it together. Um, I think this is just for anyone who hears us, I think it's really going to just like explode their brains in the best possible way of, of how to take better care of not just our patients with sickle cell, but, but our, our any, any, uh, black patient or, or patients who are non-white, um, just going to raise the bar in terms of, um, the service we provide to our, to our patients. So thank you so much for joining me today. Um, you have like, I, it's sort of weird because you're not like a like, a, do you, are there ways people can follow you or do you want any social media or any websites or anything that, or, or other resources you want to point people to, if it's not you specifically, then, you know, about sickle cell or anything like that?
1: Um, I would say, um, and there are definitely articles that I would, I, I think there was a study done by Morehouse School of Medicine specifically on sickle cell and pain, or maybe it was Mehari, <laughs> But one of, I think that uh, the HBCU uh, medical schools. Okay. Um, and so I would definitely recommend that. Um, and yeah, for me, you can always follow me at Dr. Nicole Peoples um, on Instagram, on Facebook, um, or people's functional medicine, um, on Instagram and on Facebook and, um, yeah, that's it. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Nicole.